Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. San Diego has a new map of city council districts. So the map reunites several neighborhoods that um, were split in past redistricting processes. I'm Andrew Bowen with Maureen Cavanaugh. Jade is off today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. New research shows an abundance of liquor stores may lead to bad health outcomes. Neighborhoods that have these high concentrations of stores have been linked with an increase in individual drinking habits, including young people who then engage in binge drinking. Barrio Logan has a new community plan that aims to address long-standing issues of pollution and gentrification. And you've heard of James Bond, but have you heard him sing? That's ahead on KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's been a big week for redistricting news. Both the city and county of San Diego have approved new maps that will determine who gets to run for which seat in government and which neighborhoods are grouped together. The decisions have big implications for local politics and the voting power of underrepresented minority groups. Joining me to unpack all this is Voice of San Diego reporter Maya Krishnan. Maya, welcome. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the city of San Diego. The city's independent redistricting commission approved a final map of new city council districts last night. Can you summarize some of the more significant changes to this map? Which neighborhoods are moving into new districts? So the map reunites several neighborhoods that um, were split in past redistricting processes like uh, Claremont, Linda Vista, Normal Heights, Rancho Penasquitos. Um, it also changed um, District 6, which is the city's Asian Empowerment District, to um, stretch from University City to Mira Mesa. Uh, it connects Pacific Beach to La Jolla in District 1, and District 2, which is the second coastal district, includes Mission Beach, Ocean Beach, Point Loma, Claremont and Old Town, um, which is a little bit different. The map also splits Mission Valley and Scripps Ranch between districts. 
It moves Qualcomm into District 9. Um, and then it also made some changes to District South of the 8, like moving um, communities like Shelltown and Southcrest from District 9 to District 8, and moving communities like Redwood Village and Rolando Park from District 4 to District 9, among other things. What kinds of factors have to be considered as the commission was redrawing all of these lines? So the commission has to take into account quite a few different factors. Um, One of the primary factors is that the districts have to have roughly equal population so that Um, you know, theoretically, everyone's vote counts equally. Um, But the commission also has to weigh a lot of other things like community planning group areas, natural boundaries like canyons, rivers, or major highways, um, and communities of interest, which can be sort of any group that is making an argument that they should be in a district together because they share certain characteristics or values. Uh, The commissioners also need to take into account the ability of protected racial groups like Latinos, Asians, um, Pacific Islanders, and Black voters to elect candidates of their choice and make sure that districts are not diluting their their votes through this process. There were a lot of folks who were unhappy with this new map, and it didn't pass the commission unanimously. It it passed with a 7-2 vote. What is behind the criticism of this map, and what did those two dissenters on the commission have to say about why they voted no? So, you know, there's a quite a few different um, areas of criticism that people have had for the maps. Um, A big one, and this is something that both of the commissioners who voted against the map brought up, is that, you know, the the map and and the commission seem to prioritize the wants of affluent coastal communities over, you know, communities of color and more marginalized communities. Um, But one of the commissioners who also voted no, also cited the division of Mission Valley and several other things. And there were several people at the final meeting last night who also um, brought up issues with Scripps Ranch being divided and with Old Town being moved from District 3 to District 2. Independent Redistricting Commission Chair Tom Hebrank defended the final map. Here's some of what he said last night. The final map and plan also reunited several communities that had been split in 2010, including Linda Vista, Claremont, and Rancho Panasquitos. The commission was not able to keep every community whole without violating other redistricting principles and maintaining an equal population balance. And it was necessary to split some of the communities in the final map and plan. Maya, you've done a lot of really great reporting on some of the racial dynamics that have been shaping this whole redistricting debate. And one of those stories you did is on District 4, which has been historically the Black Empowerment District. It covers most of southeastern San Diego. Things have been changing there, haven't they? Tell us more about that. Yeah, the demographics in District 4 have been shifting a lot. Um, The district is still very diverse, but it's been becoming less Black and more Latino, API, and white. Um, Much of this is due to the cost of living in San Diego and the gentrification of communities in the district, but it also has to do with other issues like over-policing and lack of job opportunities and infrastructure in those neighborhoods that particularly negatively impact Black residents. Another district that's been changing a lot is District 9. This includes City Heights, Kensington, and the college area. They've seen a similar decline in its Latinx population, and that's made it tougher to maintain that district as a Latinx empowerment district. Tell us about that. Yeah, so District 9 was um, a new district that was created in 2011. And, you know, in 2011, the intention of commissioners and the community members and advocates who, you know, for District 9 to be the way it was um, back then was that it 
would be a second Latino empowerment district. Um, historically, District 8 had been the district where Latinos could represent uh, or could elect a representative who would represent their in- interests. Um, but as the city's Latino population has been growing, people felt like they needed another seat at the table. But again, in part due to cost of living and and gentrification issues, the Latino population, um, and particularly the Latino population that can vote in that district, has grown more slowly than the white voting population in surrounding areas. And in addition to that, District 4 and District 8, which border District 9, um, also haven't been growing as fast as some communities north of the 8. And so, you know, there was a lot of trading of census tracts and things like that to ensure those districts all got up to the population that they needed to. Um, and ultimately what this meant was that a lot of communities and census tracts that were more highly white were added to District 9. And that sort of changed um, and decreased the Latino voting population in District 9 um, when compared to where the district was before um, this redistricting process. Let's talk about the county. The San Diego County has its own independent redistricting commission, and they approved a map this week for the five county supervisor districts. What were some of the significant changes there? The new county map uh, created a district one that is a majority minority Latino district. Um, so that includes parts of South San Diego, like Barrio Logan and Logan Heights. And it also includes Imperial Beach, National City and Chula Vista. Um, there's also now a coastal district, District 3, that runs from Coronado to Carlsbad. Um, district 2 continues to be the East County District and includes, you know, much of the unincorporated backcountry um, in addition to cities like El Cajon, Alway, and Santee. District 4 includes part of the city of San Diego as well um, and also now includes cities like Lemon Grove, La Mesa, and parts of the unincorporated county like Rancho San Diego, Paradise Hills, and um, Spring Valley. Um, And then District 5, the North County District, includes a lot of the um, cities along the 78 corridor, including Escondido, San Marcos, Vista, and Oceanside. Um, It also includes Camp Pendleton and the incorporated areas like Fallbrook and um, Valley Center. I've been speaking with Voice of San Diego reporter Maya Sri Krishnan. Maya, thank you for your reporting on this, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. The holiday season is known for bright lights, family, friends, and good times. Unfortunately, it's also known for too much of a good time. DUI arrests traditionally spike during the holidays. In San Diego, fatalities this year from DUI crashes have already reached a 20-year high. It's no secret that some communities have a higher concentration of liquor stores and liquor sales outlets than others. And that's an inequity and a potential danger that the Alcohol Policy Panel of San Diego is hoping to address during its annual meeting tomorrow. Joining me to talk about how this issue affects San Diego is Catherine Patterson. She's co-director for City Health and key speaker of the Alcohol Policy Planning Meeting. Catherine, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Maureen. So happy to be here with you. Also joining us is David Shorey. He's Institute for Public Strategies Program Director for East County. David, welcome. Thank you. So Catherine, give us an idea of the problems that this alcohol policy panel will be examining during tomorrow's meeting. 
Alcohol use is a major determinant of people's health. And as you mentioned, Maureen, in your opening, it can be deadly. You know, alcohol contributes to over 100,000 deaths in the U.S. per year. Alcohol can also impact our health in a number of different ways, from increasing your cancer risk and heart disease to leading to more motor vehicle crashes and even a higher homicide and suicide rate. I always think it's interesting to think about the cost associated with alcohol. Excessive alcohol use can cost the U.S. $249 billion in 2010, and this is mostly related to binge drinking. So, David, then what areas in San Diego are we seeing a higher concentration of bars and liquor stores? Well, what we can say is that across the county, out of the 628 census tracts, which is how the ABC issues licenses, that 308 are over-concentrated. That means that they've been given a number of licenses to have and those licenses have been exceeded. And that is both for off-sale licenses, meaning purchases at a liquor store that you would then take off-site to your home. And then 215 on-sale census tracts are over-concentrated, and that's bars, restaurants, and those kinds of areas. So we're seeing across the county over-concentration in uh, quite a few. You know, you think of the areas that are more inclined to have bars and liquor stores, entertainment areas. But we also see it in the rural areas as well. For example, in East County, the area of Casa de Oro, the area of Spring Valley, the area of Lemon Grove, all have areas which are over-concentrated and have contributed to increases in both crime, but also public health impacts as well. And the types of stores that can sell alcohol have expanded in recent years, David, haven't they? I've seen several convenience stores add alcohol to their inventory. Alcohol is something that makes money. And so we understand that in the economy as it is with COVID and also the insecurity of where we're going, that businesses will want to improve their financial lines so that they can continue to survive. But in reality, what we've seen is that when you have an impact like over-concentration has on communities, it actually hurts businesses. Uh, businesses tend to want to appeal to the most public, the, the greatest number of folks coming into their stores. And you'll see things like selling of high alcohol uh, beverages, single serve, those kinds of things, which you don't normally use when you're having a house party or you're having a beer or a cocktail after work. And so those kinds of things impact public health, public safety, and overall business health. Catherine, do we find a direct link between the number of liquor outlets in a community and a higher rate of crime? Absolutely. As I talked a little bit earlier, people are pretty familiar with the individual health effects of alcohol use. But surprisingly, um, many folks may not be aware that the placement and number of stores that sell alcohol can also make a huge difference in the health of a community. So, for example, neighborhoods that have these high concentrations of stores have been linked with an increase in individual drinking habits, including young people who then engage in binge drinking. And then second, studies have found that communities that have these high concentrations of alcohol outlets also have increased rates of violence and violent crime. So even after you account for things like poverty and gang violence, neighborhoods that have more of these alcohol outlets tend to see more homicides, aggravated assault, sexual assault, and robberies committed on their streets. And David, according to public policy advocates, it's not only criminal behavior that's connected to having a lot of bars and liquor stores in a neighborhood. 
it has, as you alluded to, a negative economic impact on the community. Can you explain how that works? Certainly. So when you have over-concentration of alcohol retailers, say you have a business district that has multiple bars, multiple liquor stores, multiple corner markets, and that seems to be the dominant business activity there, then it tends to not be a welcoming area perception-wise. So the uh, liquor stores, the corner markets, et cetera, will crowd out. They'll attract a certain um, clientele that maybe uh, other business owners don't necessarily want to attract. The overall physical and um, environmental condition of where this is has a tendency to downgrade. And so um, you see in communities that have these over-concentration that um, you know, there's less public investment, there's less revitalization that happens And um, people tend to not want to visit these, therefore not investing their money in these communities. So, Catherine, what do we do about this? Is this cycle of more liquor outlets crowding out other businesses in communities, is that one of the equity issues that you are trying to solve? Absolutely. I think most importantly, cities can do something about this. And I think it's really interesting to note that San Diego specifically Um, is doing something around safer alcohol sales. So I work with a group called City Health that actually looks at a number of different policies that impact the health and wellness of residents. And one of the policies that we look at specifically is safer alcohol sales. So in terms of our criteria, San Diego has currently earned a silver in this category, which is fantastic. However, they could get to gold. And if cities have the authority, limiting the density of alcohol stores and regulating the sales can have a significant impact on residents' safety, well-being, and health. So there are opportunities for improvement, and we always encourage folks to reach out to us at cityhealth.org if they want more information about how to do just that. And Catherine, as an example, Lemon Grove, which was mentioned as one of these over-concentrated areas with liquor stores and liquor outlets, the city council there recently denied a liquor license to a convenience store because they said there are too many liquor outlets in their community. Is that the kind of action that you're looking for? That's absolutely right. I think when appropriate and when possible, making good choices based on evidence-based policy is exactly what we're trying to encourage folks to do. I think the other thing, Maureen, that's important to mention is how do residents feel about the inclusion of liquor within this corner store? Is the city taking into account what residents would like to see? Because I think that's what we've seen for decades in redlined communities where we tend to see these clusters of alcohol outlets within communities of color and also low-income communities, residents should have a choice about who and what is sold within their particular community. And I've been speaking with Catherine Patterson, co-director of City Health and key speaker at tomorrow's Alcohol Policy Panel meeting, and with David Shuri, Institute for Public Strategies Program Director for East County. Catherine and David, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Maureen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Maureen. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. 
This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. Jade Heineman is away for the day. Soon, California public schools will offer free transitional kindergarten for all four-year-olds. It will be a big help to working parents. But KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne tells us it may have unintended consequences for child care providers. Pamela Casas' four-year-old goes to an in-home daycare. It costs her about $700 a month. But by 2025, kids' age could go to free transitional kindergarten at their public schools. But Casas doesn't know what she will do. I worry that there's not enough um, one-on-one attention. So in that aspect, I consider staying um, where I'm at now. Some parents told KPBS the cost of their child care exceeds their mortgage payment. Casas' payment isn't that high, but she says she would continue paying out of pocket. That's if she doesn't like what is being offered at the public school. And is it going to be equitable across all districts? Because we already know the districts, the way they are in California, like there, there's a lot of disparities even in that. But not all parents have the luxury of choice. I think it, it will be a good thing for some families because at least it'll decrease the cost. but even though there's a cost-benefit analysis, is it still the right choice? MAC is a countywide organization that helps low-income families with resources like full-day child care. CEO Arnulfo Manriquez says while Universal TK is free, it will have a shorter schedule, which may not work for some families. The majority of our population don't have the structure of work. Uh, they are essential workers and they have to be on site for the most part. Uh, so that would that that's something that was very concerning for us. Needless to say, there's a huge need for it. But he says if it's run well, it will help prepare kids for the classroom environment in kindergarten. Still, there may be unintended consequences to child care providers. In mid-August, I lost about a third of my enrollment very unexpectedly because the local elementary schools in our community had suddenly opened up a late threes, early four-year-old program. Holly Weber, the owner of Magic Hours Preschool, lost some kids to a new TK program in Mira Mesa. Now, she has had to apply for a license to care for younger children to make up the loss. But changes to her business aren't her biggest concern. There were children that still had frequent accidents throughout the day uh, that, that couldn't hardly express themselves to communicate and articulate their needs. Those are very, very critical components in a child's life. We could talk about how this is going to affect businesses all day long. But what we need to really, really focus on is the developmental concerns and the generation of children that will stem from this. Weber fears that school districts will be burdened with a new set of responsibilities. You know, there's a reason why child care centers have staff with very specialized education under for children uh, birth through five years, as well as elementary staff have specialized credentials for teaching above five years of age. And how 
kids propose to to mix those models, I, I don't know. Already, kids born between September and December get free TK. One teacher for that age group says for the program to work, schools need the proper resources. She asked that KPBS not use her name to protect her job. I am concerned about how the district is going to implement this and whether or not they have the staffing to provide the adequate support for all the students that will be coming in. Um, with the added extra students for all the four-year-olds, um, they would definitely need to get a lot more staff that have both the teaching credential and the early childhood ed education units. That despite school districts across the region facing massive staffing shortages. Public schools have until the 2025 school year to figure it out. Joining me is KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, welcome. Thank you, Maureen. Now, many parents and educators have been pushing for programs like this for years. So before we start discussing the problems that you brought up, why has transitional kindergarten been such a popular idea? You know, Maureen, it's due to the times we're living in, right? I mean, especially here in California, the cost of living is expensive. Child care is expensive. So a free TK program for younger children is in demand primarily for child care. You know, but also for preparation. TK ultimately prepares children to enter the public school system with an idea of what to expect, the classroom environment, basic skills, and just that socialization with other children. Do many school districts in San Diego already offer some form of transitional kindergarten? You know, most schools in San Diego do offer some sort of TK, but it is only for children who turn five between September 2nd and December 2nd. So many parents are left with no TK spot for their child in a public school and have to resort to looking for a private child care. I mean, if you know, if your child turned five October 31st or September 1st, you don't make that that cutoff. In some cases, some families qualify for government programs that assist with placement in some private preschools, but this is all income-based. So there are certain brackets where if a family earns, let's say, $1,000 over the, that income limit, they don't qualify for the program and need to find something within their means. San Diego Unified rolled out a pilot TK program this year. And that program only had a thousand spots and 2,500 families applied. So, I mean, that really paints a picture of the demand in one of our local districts here. And you said that some parents are paying more than their mortgage for childcare as it stands now. Is there an average cost that families are paying? Isn't that crazy? I mean, I, I don't think there's an average because it really varies on the type of childcare a family has. But I did hear from various families that the cost of their childcare exceeds their mortgage. And although I believe it, it's, it's still a hard pill to swallow, right? And so the parent in my story takes her son to an in-home daycare with a handful of children. I think it was a group of maybe five to 10 kids. And she's only going part-time, so she does three half days out of the week, and she's paying $700 a month. And now let's say she wanted to take her son full-time, her price would double. And so, you know, another option are many families like myself rely on grandparents or nearby family to help, but not everyone has that option. So it really looks, you know, very different across the board depending on what type of care a family has access to. 
Now, the parent you spoke with in your report has concerns about the one-to-one attention that might be lacking in public school transitional kindergarten. But kids almost as young go to kindergarten in public schools, and for the most part, they get plenty of attention. So what's the concern? You know, like I said, the parent I interviewed in the story takes her son to an in-home daycare where it's it's a smaller group of children. So ratios are a big concern for her and for many parents that are already used to a center like this. So her son has gotten used to that and she's gotten used to the fact that, let's say, maybe it's a ratio of five children per adult. And that's just something that we're not going to see in the universal TK program. Schools are already facing staffing shortages. So how will that demand be met? Parents are concerned about how the ratios will, will work. Are we talking about 15 to 20 younger children per adult? And also we need to think about, you know, younger children have different needs. Some children aren't fully potty trained. Some children still need to work on their communication skills, socialization skills. So schools really need to work on how this will be rolled out. Right. How are they preparing to offer TK? You know, we're still in the very early stages of this. So we haven't gotten a clear picture of how the schools are going to be implementing this. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see how each school district runs their TK programs and just how universal they will be. You know, one teacher we spoke to said her district is remodeling her school and they are already keeping the TK programs in mind. They haven't done much planning as far as the classrooms and teachers, but she told me that they have started to purchase smaller furniture, you know, adequate for these younger children. Child care providers of course, seem to be caught in the middle of this. And as a group, they've been through a lot since the pandemic. Can you remind us about the struggles that they've already faced? Yeah, I mean, childcare providers are barely recovering after the pandemic. You know, some centers had to close during the pandemic. And when they did come back, they had to reduce the number of kids that, that they can accept. You know, they had to enforce new rules like masking and safety protocols or, you know, some centers even shut down. They didn't make it out of the pandemic. So so this program really comes at a time when the rules have eased up and parents are going back to the office and the centers are back in demand. A lot of them with wait lists of children waiting for a spot. But now that is all being threatened because of this universal TK program. You know, if childcare costs are as high as a second mortgage and the state now offers a free program at their local public school, and oftentimes where an older sibling is already going, what route do you think parents are going to take? It's a tough situation. Although, you know, I will add that some parents express thinking about staying with their current private childcare provider if they don't like what the public schools are offering. So again, we're talking about the ratios and the curriculum. So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how it all plays out. I've been speaking with KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. Tanya, thank you very much. Thank you. Residents of Barrio Logan are hoping that a newly minted community plan will help address long-standing issues that have plagued the area for decades, issues like toxic air pollution and gentrification. The new framework, which the San Diego City Council approved last week, aims to ensure growth without displacement. It also includes new parks and an attempt to shield residents from the harmful effects of living so close to polluting industries. Joining me now is Julie Corrales, a policy advocate for the Environmental Health Coalition, which helped to work on the new plan. Julie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Happy to be here. 
This plan was so many years in the making, why has it taken so long to approve an update to the Barrio Logan community plan? Back in 2008, the process began. Community got very involved. There was over 50 meetings, a five-year-long process, and a plan was actually approved by the city council. However, industry along the port wasn't happy with portions of it, and they launched a uh, ballot initiative to overturn it. Unfortunately, it was successful in making Barrio Logan the only community in San Diego to have had the entire city opine on its plan. It was successful, although it wasn't entirely accurate or truthful campaign. It was successful and the plan was overturned. Well, the residents of Barrio Logan and the shipbuilding industry that exists along the port there actually started talking and came to an agreement somewhat. Can you describe what changed in this plan that led that shipbuilding industry and the and the other industries along the coast there to go along with this plan update? It's an interesting story. The residents of Barrio Logan have continued to press for a plan, an updated plan that protects their health. But recently, our city council and, and our former mayor began to entertain the idea, but required that the shipbuilding industry and community members and environmental justice advocates come to some sort of agreement that guaranteed uh, to the city that the process wouldn't end again in a referendum. So representatives of all three parties came to the table and after about a year of meetings, uh, signed a memorandum of understanding that kind of outlined the uses and what we're calling the transition zone, which was the area of contention in the 2013 plan. And honestly, there weren't too many changes. If anything, the transition zone is stronger. I think all folks at the table realized that not having a plan in place was detrimental to everyone in the community, including industry. And that understanding led to the memorandum of understanding and the plan that came before council. How have residents been reacting to the approval of this plan update so far? There's been a lot of celebration when it passed at the planning group meeting, when the planning group approved it and sent it off to council. There was celebrations and there was tears even. And when it came before city council, there was more of that. Folks were a little sad to not be able to be there in person. um, And some of the restrictions with the pandemic didn't allow us to be together and celebrate um, at city hall the way we would have uh, had Time's been different, but we were together. We were excited. Uh, There were tears. There were lots of praise and, and just being together. When talking about community plan updates in other neighborhoods, the hottest debate is often around housing and density. How does the new plan for Barrio Logan address those issues and the threat of gentrification? Barrio Logan has same the same concerns. We have areas that are older specifically around Boston Avenue, that didn't want to see a lot of density. But for the most part, I think our communities are a little different um, in that sense, where we don't mind the density, we just want density for us. We want the ability to keep living here and for our children to live here and our neighbors to stay. The plan, uh, the Barrio Logan Community Plan, does increase densities in areas closer to downtown. It rezoned an entire area that was previously uh, industrial for higher density housing. But what we did is we were able to increase the percentage of affordable units required in new developments. So citywide, 10% of units have to be affordable, deed restricted. Um, in Barrio Logan now, it, it has to be 15. And another important part of that is that in Barrio Logan, developers are not allowed to pay the what's called the in lieu of fee. 
a fee that allows you to get out of building the units, which is usually a lot less than it would cost to build them. In Barrio Logan, developers can't do that. They have to build the units within the planning area. Now, this updated plan also proposes the creation of some new parks and environmentally friendly community spaces. Can you tell us what those will look like? Uh, We're so excited about the greening efforts in Barrio. We identified different uh, locations for pocket parks. We're especially excited about the park on Boston Avenue. It will take a large swath, about three blocks of uh, Caltrans right of way, underutilized and, and create a beautiful park space for communities. We are park deficient. We only have 7% tree canopy in our neighborhood and we're at high risk of urban heat island. So identifying these opportunities for green space will go a long way in protecting our future. There's been a long history of environmental racism committed by both the local and the state government against the residents of Barrio Logan. This goes all the way back to the construction of the I-5 freeway through there. Can you tell us just a bit about that history? Sure. You know, we'd say it goes beyond that, right? It goes back to redlining to the 30s when Logan Heights and Barrio Logan were redlined. It goes back to a time before community planning uh, when the powers that be at the time decided that Barrio Logan and Logan Heights is where all the industry in San Diego should go, right? Away from more affluent and wider neighborhoods um, and in places where brown and black and indigenous people lived. Um, and at the time, it was seen as, as acceptable, right? The uh, BIPOC people of the city would bear the brunt of uh, the entire city's industry. Um, and that continued up until really this plan, the passing of this plan. Um, up until this plan, you could put a auto shop right next to a child's bedroom window. Um, and it really was a remnant of, you know, historical racist land use policy that didn't value the lives of, of black and brown folks. So um, it's another reason that this this plan is is huge for us and really marks um, the dawning of a new era. Lastly, Julie, there's a nascent campaign to put a cap over a section of the I-5 freeway that would reunite Barrio Logan with Logan Heights. Can you tell us about that? So EHT, we've been on the peripheral of it. It's it's really driven by a former council member, David Alvarez, and we're excited about it. Uh, you know, I think it, 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 it points to um, institutional um, and governmental agencies realizing the damage they've done to our communities and trying to make amends for it. I think Logan Heights and Barrio Logan are a perfect place to, to begin uh, to make up for some of that damage. Putting a cap over the freeway and reuniting the communities, which to this day feel like one and act like one and and um, live as one community uh, will go a long way to rectify some of those injustices. We can get back green space on these lids. We can add housing, affordable housing on these lids. I think it's it's time to do so. And I think it's the right thing to do. Big changes coming to Barrio Logan, at least let's hope so. I've been speaking with Julie Corrales, a policy advocate for the Environmental Health Coalition. Julie, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. 
Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Andrew Bowen. Jade Heineman is away for the day. Actor Tom Stewart put his obsession with James Bond into a 2018 San Diego International Fringe show called One Man Bond. For the show, he channeled all six actors who have played Bond and condensed all the films into an hour. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando has been following the evolution of the show, which now returns as James Bond the Musical at the Coronado Playhouse this weekend. Mr. Bond. Oh, I'm sorry, Tom, Tom Stewart. Yeah, I go by both. You have a show now that you have been working on for a number of years. I was privileged and delighted to see the One Man Bond show at Fringe. But what has it turned into now? The current iteration, uh, James Bond the Musical, is a musical cabaret comedy adaptation of One Man Bond or The Bond Show as it later became known. And we've kind of musicalized um, the show. We have musical interludes, rejected Bond themes, and soundtrack deep cuts, and some original Bond pastiche songs. Now, the original One Man Bond condensed all of the Bond movies into one show. So can people expect this from this show? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We're doing all 25 at this point, including no Time to Die. We're going to put that on a sticker on the poster. It now includes No Time to Die. So yeah, so you're getting the, the same experience with live music and, and musically themed sketches and skits as well. So explain to people what inspired this and what you wanted this show to kind of encompass. Music is so central to the, to the James Bond films. And yet whenever you see you know, a celebration of Bond music, you know, it's, it's, it's the same songs, it's the theme songs because, you know, naturally they're as iconic as the films themselves and that's what everyone wants to hear. I, on the other hand, <laughs> am very interested in this kind of shadow world of Bond music, which is the Bond themes that were submitted to the producers but rejected, or um, the, the songs that were specifically recorded as background. To never really be heard, so I wanted to bring all that to light because the show has always been a kind of alternative, skewed perspective on the Bond film. So I wanted uh, a musical soundtrack that it also addressed that. So talk about the kind of research you did for this because not just in terms of the music but also you find like memos from producers and like really interesting little tidbits to throw into this. It started with rejected Bond themes and going online and through through YouTube and and websites where you can find videos and demos of all these amazing and not so amazing songs that were submitted to the producers of the Bond films but for one reason or another uh, never taken taken up. So yeah, it's a fascinating little niche culture that we've appeared to uh, have tread into. (laughs) And one of these is a rejected golden eye. That's right, yeah, by Ace of Base. We're in the 90s, nothing is the same. The Cold War is replaced by different actors, using different names. 
It's an incredible piece of music, making a very 80s sounding song to a very distinctly 90s movie. So it's not hard to see why the producers might have gone with, uh, with another artist. And you also do a little bit of a musical number to kind of sum up your feelings about Spectre. <laughs> well, <laughs> not specifically my feelings about Spectre, uh, but yeah, it's in, in, in every version of this show, I do something different with Spectre every time based on the kind of show I'm doing. So because it's a musical, I wanted to have a, a kind of musical version of the film Spectre. And that's what we've done here, specifically a William Shatner spoken word version of the movie, uh, inspired by the Hollies, he ain't heavy, it's my brother. He's my brother. <laughs> but I'm bond. But not bond enough to carry the film. And what inspired you to tackle Bond? Is Bond a character that you've always been obsessed with or liked? Yes, uh, to both. I've been watching Bond films since I was a child. It's kind of ingrained in growing up as a, as a kind of British person, at least in my generation, that, you know, these movies would be on, the, on TV all the time. They were big events when they were on. And, you know, o over the years, it sort of becomes like a lexicon that you carry with you through life. So when it came time to sort of devise a solo show for myself, like a, like a showcase, this was, for me at least, the obvious choice because I was so invested in it as as an idea and and you know because I, I am a British person living in a foreign country thematically as well it seemed to uh, the idea of Bond seemed to jive this kind of world traveler who is also incredibly for better and worse uh, representative of Britain and its place in the world. And what do you think it is about Bond the films and the character that have captured everybody's imagination for decades? Uh, it's a really good question. I, I wish <laughs> I wish I had a good answer for it. He seems the kind of the least the least likely candidate to to last so long because he was already dated by the time the '60s came around. That that type of that type of hero, that type of personality, and and the ideas that he represented were already very dated. I think you know part of it is is you know people's natural gravitation towards towards nostalgia you know he's a naturally backwards looking character and and i think that jibes but that but the the uh, the film series has always been incredible at keeping up to date they've always contemporized the the setting they've never kept it a period piece and you know we, you can you can change the actor periodically which is a you know a great formula for uh, longevity in in a media franchise uh, you're not tied to one uh, specific actor. And, you know, and they let the person playing it do it for about 20 years or so, so or for what feels like 20 years. So it, it works with, you know, with the way that the industry works as well. And talk about the journey that your Bond show has had, because it started at Fringe. Yeah. And this was a 60-minute piece that was in a tiny little theater. Yeah. And now you're here at the Coronado Playhouse. It started as a show that was as, as basic as could be, that, you know, I could literally take anywhere and do, you know, theoretically, I could set up on a street corner and, and uh, perform it before being arrested. So 
because of that, it's always been extremely flexible and adaptable to, you know, to take to theaters and say, uh, I, you know, I have, I have this show and we can make it as big as you want or as small as you want. And that's kind of very attractive to, to theaters because, you know, that you can work with what they have. And the joy of this show is always kind of reinventing it each time based on the place that you're performing performing with and what kind of a show you want to do. And so, you know, when, when the possibility of working with Canado Playhouse came up, uh, I immediately thought that I needed to turn it into a musical. So it's very much about, um, it, it's, it's a piece that travels well, like, like Bond himself. <laughs> All right, well, I want to thank you very much for talking oh. about the James Bond musical. You're very welcome. That was Beth Accomando speaking with actor and writer Tom Stewart. His James Bond the Musical runs this Friday through Sunday at the Coronado Playhouse. I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.